August 21st, 2010, uh, was leading worship with uh, Mitchell Shoemaker and the band at an event called The Forge. And as the service was about to start, um, I made a real quick last minute decision to go to the restroom, even at the risk of missing the first part of the service. And at the restroom, uh, I was approached uh, outside the men's restroom by a girl, a beautiful girl named Jessica Plana. And um, she explains to me that she knows my sister and that they're actually in a Bible study together um, at the university where they're in school. And I heard none of that. Uh, all I saw was beautiful half-Cuban girl uh, talking to me. Her lips were moving. I was certain of that. But as I continued to go to the restroom after the conversation, I had no clue what we had talked about. Uh, went on and led worship uh, that morning. And the rest is history. Now, she'll tell you, if you get her side of the story, that uh, she was uninterested in any type of relationship or in me. But nine months after that meeting, we were engaged to be married. So I digress. I'll let you determine whether that's true or not. And now we've moved halfway across the country from what we would both call our homes. Um, we pastor the uh, best church in the world. And we have a, a one heck of a cute little boy that we're pretty fond of. And I tell that story to tell you that that last second decision to go to the restroom, a tiny little decision that in, in, in the grand scheme of things was, was a very small action, uh, paid dividends in my life. Um, I'll give you another one. Finishing a degree at New Orleans Seminary, telling Jessica that I really felt like God was leading me to do a Ph.D., but I didn't want to do it in New Orleans. Um, that summer, went to the Southern Baptist Convention because even before I was a pastor, I enjoyed going to the largest business meeting in the world. Tells you about how big of a nerd I am. Uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention, decided to go to the exhibit hall where the booths are set up. And at that exhibit hall, I met uh, a guy at the Southeastern Seminary booth named Nathan Finn. And that conversation led to coffee. And then that coffee uh, time led to an invitation uh, to come and study under Nathan at Southeastern Seminary, which brought us to North Carolina, which brought us to somehow Bun, North Carolina. That small, little, insignificant, seemingly insignificant decision to go to the exhibit hall and walk around and look at booths and get candy and pins led to a, a life change where we are now here. And I share that to say small decisions, things that we would think are very insignificant, have profound impacts on our lives. Those kinds of small decisions can have drastic consequences on the direction, the trajectory of the rest of our lives. So if small decisions like that, like the two I just, just gave you an example of, have that kind of an impact, how should we think of what we would call large decisions? Further, how should we think about those decisions where we're not doing something necessarily, but believing something. Because those decisions, what we believe, what we set our hearts and minds to believing, impact us just as much, if not more than, those little small decisions that we make every day. Here's the point. What you believe and what you do sets the trajectory for your life. What you believe and what you do sets the trajectory for your life. Now, this happens in Mark's gospel in our last sermon in the book of Mark. We've made it to the end. This is our last one. And uh, it's been over a year that we've been studying through Mark's gospel. We've reached the conclusion and the reality of the resurrection that Jesus has beaten death 
changes what we believe about everything. That event and what we do in response to that event changes everything. We saw this last week in, uh, as we observed the resurrection and three implications of the resurrection for our lives in the here and now. This week, Mark's text will show us very practically what we do with that belief. We believe that Jesus has risen. We believe that he's conquered death and he's paid for our sin. Now, what do we do with that belief? What does it look like for us moving forward? Uh, We've observed that Jesus' disciples themselves struggled with the resurrection. I think if we're honest this morning, we've struggled in the same way that they have at some point in our lives, believing that a man could come back from being dead. Maybe like this morning, many of you might be in the same place this morning, perhaps even right now thinking this is just crazy, that that we would believe that someone was placed in a tomb, he was graveyard dead, and that he came back to life. Yet, when Jesus appears to his disciples, we'll see this in the text, it changes everything for them. It changes absolutely everything. The trajectory of their lives are now completely different. I think this morning what we would see is that for us, spiritually, when we see Christ with our spiritual eyes, when he opens our blindness to see him, reveals himself to us, it changes everything. Jesus commissions his disciples, he sends them on a mission, and their lives are forever changed. I think we'll see that in Mark's gospel this morning as we walk through it. Uh, now, I must, before I get started, give, give credit where credit is due. Uh, Pastor Stephen Wade, who all of you know, or most of you know, uh, broke this text down in this way. He and I have uh, been preaching through uh, Mark together, he at Faith and me at here at Poplar Spring. And so if anything in this outline makes sense or is helpful or beneficial, you can send Pastor Stephen a text today and say that it was, uh, it was helpful and good. So I told him whether it sinks or whether it soars, he gets the credit for it today. So... Um, yeah, so anyway, so uh, I've enjoyed being able to, to, to pray and read through the text and study the text with men like Pastor Stephen and, and on occasion uh, Chuck Quarles, and so um, much of today is, is, is to their credit. So uh, before we jump into the text, though, we have something we must deal with that's probably also in your text but is not Scripture. Uh, so we don't do a, lo- a lot of crowd participation at Poplar Spring, but this morning, raise your hand if your Bible has some sort of note after verse 8, right? It's a bracket, a parenthesis, some kind of disclaimer like some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. That's most of you guys. Uh, if you don't have a note there in your text, you probably have brackets around it at least, right? Verses 9 through 20. Well, what does that mean? What's the point in that? Uh, Several of you came to me last week after the sermon and said, hey, I see this is the next thing in the text. What does this mean? What is this all about? Why would they give us this statement that verses 9 through 20 are not in the earliest manuscripts? And what do we do with this? Well, I'm glad you're paying attention. Uh, If you've been wondering that, maybe even this week, let's jump into it and let's see. But um, here's the thing. We're going to take a few moments and deal with this little disclaimer, this this little parenthesis that we see there, Uh, and I think think it'll do a couple things for us. I think it'll help us to understand better what we believe about the Word of God, how we can trust the Word of God, how it is God's Word to us. I think it'll do that for us, but I also think it'll show us, it'll maybe shed some light on why we would study verses 9 through 20. Why wouldn't we just end our study of Mark at verse 8? So let me give you permission this morning. Uh, I don't don't think we do this often either, but some of you are like, well, I really don't care about all these nitty-gritty details, and this is just confusing and over my head, and that's okay. So if that's you this morning, you're like, Matt, I don't care one bit about this. I'm going to give you full permission right now to absolutely zone out. You can pull your phone out, check your fantasy football team, you can check Facebook, you can completely zone out for the next few moments, and that's quite all right, uh, because this is not God's Word. It's not Scripture. It's important. I think it's helpful for us. 
but it's not on the same level as God's word. So full permission right now, you can zone out, you can space out. Uh, but stay with me, because after I get through playing the, the part of a church historian for a second, I want to call us back together, bring us back into the text together, where we will study God's word. And so I don't want you to zone out there. So if you're going to zone out, let it be right now. Um, so let's deal with this disclaimer. Uh, why would it have that note in there, that asterisk in there, that this is not included in some of the earliest manuscripts? Church family, we believe that the original autographs that were written by Mark and by Matthew and these different uh, writers of Scripture, the original autographs are inerrant. That means they, they have no error. The, the, the writers of Scripture were inspired by God, and they wrote His inerrant word with no error in any way. It was perfect. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 would tell us this. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Even by the time Peter's writing, he's referring to these documents as inspired Scripture. As the word of God. And so what we're saying is that the original documents that these men wrote, that Mark actually wrote down, is the word of God completely true and with no error. Now this whole thing would get a whole lot easier for us, and we wouldn't be having this conversation this morning if anyone owned that copy. If we could go to them this morning and say, hey, can I borrow that? I need to see it for a second. And it's the original one that Mark wrote down. But no one has that. Uh, What we do have are manuscripts. What we do have are copies of Mark's original. And here's what's incredible about that. The copies that we have can be dated back to within a decade of Mark's original. Now, that's incredible. That's incredible. And I know for some of you, you're like, that doesn't seem that that incredible. Uh, But I want to to show you why. The church copied Mark's letter, Mark's gospel that we've been reading, so that all the churches, as the church was growing and expanding, so that all the churches could have God's word. They believed it to be God's word even that early. And so they wrote these down, they copied them, and God has preserved it for 2,000 years. Now that's incredible in itself. Let me show you. Uh, We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts of the New Testament. And we have over 9,000 manuscripts that are in various languages other than Greek and Latin. That's over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, some of them are small. Some of them are, are the size of a postage stamp. So, obviously, you're not getting the whole New Testament on a postage stamp. Some of them are very large. Some of them would be the entire New Testament in one document, one manuscript. Some of them are from the first century, from the time right at the apostles' life. Some of them are all the way up to the 13th century during the Middle Ages. But what we have are 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. You want to see how incredible God is. You want to see what the miracle is that God has done by preserving his word. When you compare the 24,000 manuscripts that we have of the New Testament with other ancient documents, it's staggering. Let me just show you. You've heard of Caesar, right? And the writings of Caesar, the great emperor. We have 10 copies Ten copies of Caesar's works. And here's the crazy thing. They date, there's, a, there's a thousand year gap between Caesar's life and the earliest copy that we have. A thousand years past. A uh, historian named Tacitus. You've heard me quote Tacitus even in our worship gatherings. The historian Tacitus. We have 20 copies. And again, there's a thousand year gap between when he lived and when we have the earliest copy of his works. Uh, Plato. You, if you've studied anything in philosophy, you've heard of Plato. We have seven copies of his works. 1,200-year gap from the time that Plato died or wrote his documents to the earliest copies that we have of it. Now, put that in perspective. We have 24,000 New Testament manuscripts to within a few years of Jesus' death. 
Not a thousand year gap, a few years. Friends, God's word is trustworthy and he's miraculously preserved it for us. But it only gets better. Here's the thing. With the exception of a few words or phrases, like little single words or little short phrases, there are only two places where those 24,000 manuscripts disagree. One of them is in Mark's text that we're in today. The other is in John chapter 7, in the first part of chapter 8. So to say that another way, of the 24,000 manuscripts we have, we have 99% agreement between them completely. Um, and think about this. Of all the New Testament passages, with all the various writers that we have contributing, with the time span that they're writing in, and the geographical locations that they're coming from, they're writing from all over the place, the fact that we have only two passages with some disagreement is phenomenal. That should cause you to have incredible trust in the way that God has not just accidentally but miraculously preserved his word for us. Let me illustrate how incredible that would be. There may be 50 people in this room right now. I doubt it. 40 to 50 people. And imagine this evening around 2 o'clock just as you're getting into your Sunday nap and you're, you're about to go on cruise control in that recliner and cut some Z's. You get a phone call. And it's one of the elders here at Poplar Spring. And they say, hey, do you remember from Matt's sermon today the month and year that he said he met Jessica? Now, some of you would get it because you have a good memory. You were paying attention and you would know it. August 2010, you would get it. Now, some of you would get the month right, but you'd get the year wrong. Some of you would get the year right, but you'd get the month wrong. And some of you were so zoned out, you'd be like, who is Matt? Who's Jessica? Here's the point. Even in a room of 40 people, we wouldn't get 99% agreement even in this small group with those details. Of the 24,000 manuscripts we have, there is almost unanimous agreement. God's word is trustworthy. There's two takeaways here, two little bits of application that we'll make before we jump into Mark uh, chapter 16. Number one. Because of the way God has miraculously preserved his word with incredible uh, quantity and accuracy, you can be confident that the English translation that's in your hand, regardless of whether it's New American Standard or King James or ESV or New King James or Holman Bible, whatever you have, that copy of God's word uh, trans, uh, transcribed into English is God's inspired holy word and you can trust it. It's God's word to you. The second bit of application, and sort of related to the first, is, I don't think anyone here would claim this, but because of the way God has preserved and sustained his word, it would make it foolish of us to claim that any one English translation is the only inspired translation, right? Like, even the, the King James, many people would claim that the King James is the only inspired version. That would be silly, because God didn't, God didn't inspire it in King James English in the first place. So you can trust your Bible. You can trust that the one you're holding in your hand right now or scrolling on your phone right now is God's inspired word for you and for me and for the church and for all that we know in life and godliness. So what about this one in Mark? What about this disclaimer that you have in your New Testament? Do the variations in the manuscripts, if this is one of the two places where we have that, do they make a difference? Here's the thing. The majority of the manuscripts... Even if the oldest ones do not, which is what your disclaimer says, more than likely, the majority of the manuscripts include this section of Mark. Even if they include it with an asterisk or with a, with a little, little bracket and a little statement after it. So we're going to study it. 
And additionally, and I think even more importantly, everything in 9 through 20 agrees with the rest of the New Testament, uh, and we see it fulfilled in the New Testament, It's in particular the book of Acts. So you get to the book of Acts, and you see everything in here from 9 to 20 is fulfilled immediately in the apostles' lives and in their ministries. And so we're going to study it. Um, so if you've zoned out, you've been checking football scores, that kind of thing, jump back in. Uh, put your phone away unless it's how you're reading God's word and let's walk through the end of Mark chapter 16 together I want to show us four things Jesus did in the text four things Jesus did and four expected responses or reactions that we should have to what Jesus did right so four things Jesus did four things we do in response number one Jesus appears and we must respond Jesus appears and we must respond Verses 9 to 14, you see this. So you may say, well, Matt, uh, that's not true. I'm actually not responding to Jesus today. I'm agnostic or I'm atheist and I don't, I don't, I'm not responding to Jesus. No, no, friend, you're, you're responding. Uh, your response of apathy or, or indecision is, in fact, a response. It's just the wrong response. You're, in fact, saying, I'm rejecting Jesus. But every one of us here today are responding to the Christ that we see in the text of Scripture. The question is how. So verses 9 through 11, let's read together. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first in Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went and told those uh, who she had been with, or who had been with him, and as as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So Mary goes to the tomb. She's going to carry out these burial customs. We saw that last week in the text. Now she goes and she sees the angel, and the angel tells her that Jesus is not here. He's risen. Go back and tell the disciples and so, uh, should that, 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 that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee. Well, verse 9 tells us that he appeared to her. So at some point, Jesus too has, has, has shown up, and Mary is even more confident that Jesus has been raised. And so she's going back to tell the disciples. And then in verse 11, they would not believe her. They wouldn't believe her. She's seen the angel. She's seen Christ himself. Can you imagine the heartbreak here? They wouldn't believe what she knew to be the truth. Yet it didn't stop her. Jesus' appearance led to a response, an obedient response. She did what she was told to do. She went to proclaim the good news, that he had defeated death. Keep going in the text. Look at verses 12 and 13. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest... They did not believe them. So here, here were two disciples walking out of Jerusalem. You can read this in Luke chapter 24, the extended, more detailed version of this. Where are these guys going? It really doesn't matter where they're going. They've just watched Jesus be killed and buried. They've observed the, the cesspool of corruption that is Jerusalem. And so anywhere they could be going would be better than this place. They've just got to get out of town. This place is awful. And so as they're leaving, this guy shows up and he starts asking them some pretty provoking questions you go read Luke 24, you see that, that whole narrative unfold. And this guy's Jesus. And he's sort of playing like he has no clue. He's, he's, he's in some way, uh, it says in our text, in another form. But in some way, he's not recognizable to them at this point. He's wanting to test them to see what they believe. To see if they're even in any way remembering what he had told them about his life, his death, and his resurrection. Remember, Jesus appears and demands a response. So watch this. One of them kind of gets snappy. If you go to Luke, Luke 24, you see this. And, and, and one of them kind of gets a little snappy and says, well, hey, are you the only chap in all of Israel that has no clue what's taking place this weekend? Like, like really, you're the only guy that doesn't know what's taking place? 
And I love Stephen. He, he, he says uh, the irony is here that Jesus is the only one who knew what took place that weekend. Uh, as far as spiritually, as far as eternal life is concerned, he reveals himself in this moment. Jesus reveals who he is, his true identity. They're amazed, and in response, they, get, they run back and tell the rest, the text says. But the rest still do not believe. And so we have two cases so far in our text this morning where Jesus appears to someone, either Mary or these two disciples on the road, and the response is belief and obedience. We also have two cases in the text this morning where proclamation happens to the disciples, to the rest, that is, and the, the, the response is unbelief. They will not believe. The other disciples, they do not believe. Then verse 14. And afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves. As they were reclining at the table, and he had rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So verse 14 is where the rubber hits the road for us this morning, for them and for us, them in the text and for us this morning. They're sitting back, reclining at a the table. They're stuck in their unbelief. They're, they're, they're mourning the loss of their, their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus. Jesus shows up to the 11, it says. And what does he do? He rebukes them for their unbelief, their hardness of heart. Why? Because they had two eyewitnesses, two people that had seen the risen Christ come and tell them, proclaim the truth to them. And yet, because of the hardness of their hearts, they would not believe. So let's pump the brakes this morning, friends, and listen uh, before, before we go on and, and judge these disciples too harshly. What about us? What about you as you listen to God's word week after week and you've seen the resurrected Christ, you've seen the cross and that, his sin, or that your sin has been paid for on that cross and you listen to his word every week. You've heard testimony, eyewitness accounts of the truth. Thomas gets kind of sassy in this conversation with Jesus, even as he appears before them, and he says, hey, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it even unless I get, to, I get to touch the scars. If I touch the scars, then I'll believe it. And so Jesus, because he's full of grace, he stoops for our weakness. He lets Thomas. Thomas puts his hand in his side and touches his scars. And then Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 29, talking to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Here's the gospel, friends, that Jesus came and he's fully God, fully man, and he lived a perfect life. He had no sin in him. He went to Calvary. He went to the cross and he died to take your sin, to take my sin, the penalty that we were rightly deserving. He was buried, fully dead, completely dead. Yet on the third day, he rose, just like prophecy said he would, just like Mark's gospel has told us that he did. He appeared before Mary. He appeared before these disciples. And this morning, will you refuse to believe the gospel? Will you refuse to believe what Jesus has done just because you've not seen him physically? This is what Jesus rebuked his disciples for. They heard the truth, yet they refused to believe it. Don't be one of the ones that would receive this condemnation, this rebuke from Jesus. This morning, you have heard the truth from the authority of God's written word. He's preserved it for you miraculously for this purpose, a purpose specifically for you, that you would hear it and believe. And Jesus appears, and it demands a response. He does here to these disciples, and they have no ch choice but to respond to the risen Christ that they've seen. He appears to us in every page of Scripture. You say, Matt, he's never appeared to me. If I had that luxury, I would believe too. Open your Bibles, friends. On every page of Scripture, Christ is revealed to us. He has appeared, and now will you respond? How will you respond? Number two, 
Jesus commands, and we must obey. So Jesus appears, and we must respond. Point number two, Jesus commands, and we must obey. Look at verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. And whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Before we would deal with Jesus' command here, because we're going to deal with his command, we must address the wording of this text. Because if we're not careful, there's potential here for heretical teaching to come from verse 16. Some would read this and go, hey, does verse 16 mean that we must be baptized to be saved? Or to say it another way, if we're not baptized, does that mean we go to hell? Because it could seem like that's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 16, you read it for yourself. That's absolutely not what Jesus is saying, and it is not what the Scriptures teach us. If you read the New Testament, the Scriptures do not teach us that you must be saved in order to be regenerate, to be saved, and to be in heaven. This text is no different. Look at it closely. Here's the reality. Here's what we must see in this text, that baptism is the proof, it's the evidence of our belief. Jesus says this, whoever believes and is baptized because baptism is the response to our belief. Let me illustrate this for you this morning, even thinking about your own marriage, your own family. If you were to come to me and say, hey Matt, I love my wife, I love my husband, I cherish my children, and yet you live like they don't matter, like they don't exist, Maybe you don't even live with them. Maybe you don't communicate with them. Maybe you haven't talked to them in years. I'd say, man, where's the proof? Like, like your lips are saying one thing, and maybe you really believe that, but where, where's, the, where's the truth as evidenced in the proof in the pudding, if you will? Same here. Your action, baptism, flows from your belief in the gospel. Your lives are saved by faith, Ephesians chapter 2, and you demonstrate that faith through the act, through the obedience of baptism. Your salvation doesn't rest on you going under the water. There's another way that we know this to be the case in our text. If you look at verse 16, that's not where the text ends. Jesus doesn't say, if you fail to be baptized, you are condemned. He says, and very specifically, whoever does not believe will be condemned. So Jesus is putting this together for us. This text has been wrongly used in so many uh, churches and traditions to teach that you must be baptized to be saved. The Catholic Church teaches this. Uh, Some Lutherans and Methodists teach this. Some Pentecostal denominations teach this. The Mormon Church teaches this, that you must be dunked under that water, and through that act, God is removing sin or guilt so that you can be saved. That's why many that would come from those different traditions, we would ask to be baptized because the baptism from those traditions are teaching a different thing about baptism than we teach about baptism. So what's the takeaway? What's the application this morning? Well, it's that some of you here today need to follow Christ in this step of obedience, this step of baptism. You already believe. You've already trusted Christ. You've already repented of your sins. You know you've been saved. Now the next step for you, your your actions should be that you would be baptized as evidence of your belief. Let me encourage you this morning. If you're here and you've not done that, make that decision to be obedient in baptism. I think the text of Scripture would teach us that that's expected. Some of you are thinking, well, good. I've done that. I've believed been baptized to evidence or as proof of that belief so I'm good right I've I've already been obedient well maybe or maybe not 
Look what else Jesus says about being obedient. Now, this is where we're jumping back into verse 15. I told you we'd come back to his command. He says this, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Last time I checked, that hadn't been done yet. The whole creation has not heard, are not believing in Christ as Savior. So there is plenty of room for all of us to be obedient in this command this morning. Obedience here is evidence of your belief, just like baptism is evidence of your belief. So this morning, be honest with yourself before the Lord. Ask the Lord to search your heart and ask, am I being obedient here? Am am I responding to the truth of Jesus' resurrection by being a proclaimer of the gospel? This is the mission of the church. This is the mission of every individual that's a born-again believer. Don't just gloss over this in the text. Remember what we're proclaiming, that he's defeated death. This is the greatest news in all the world. And when Jesus appears, meaning that he's alive and the tomb is empty, when Jesus appears, it means that I must obey the mission that he's given me. He's proclaimed that there is a mission for our lives. Are we being obedient in it? Proclaim the gospel. Here's the incredible thing in God's word for us. It hits everyone this morning, right? Regardless of where you're at this morning in this room, uh, the application is is for all of us in the text. Some of you, your immediate application this morning is believe. This morning, for the first time, God is opening your eyes to see that Jesus' death was for you. His resurrection means that he's conquered death. And you need to believe that this morning, that the tomb is empty, that he's won the victory. For some of us, the immediate application this morning is be baptized. You've been a believer for quite a while. You've understood Jesus' death and resurrection, but you've never followed him in baptism. There's immediate application in that for you. The rest of us this morning, the immediate application is be proclaimers. Be about this obedience, this, this, this thing God's called us to in announcing, proclaiming the good news that he's conquered death. No one gets a pass this morning. This text hits all of us somewhere. Jesus' action, he commands, our response is we obey. Number three, next action we see from Jesus. Jesus promises and we believe what he says. Jesus promises and we believe what he says. We see it in verse 17 and 18. But Before we read... Just know that these two verses are considered to be uh, the, the two hardest verses in Mark, right? In Mark's gospel. And a lot of people steer clear of these verses. Some, some folks won't even preach the end of Mark's gospel because of these two verses. Because it sounds like some sort of backwoods, crazy, hillbilly, Appalachian snake handling churches or something. Some kind of cult thing going on with drinking poison. And, and people just kind of like, well, that doesn't sound like what we're doing today. So I'm going to steer clear of that. Let's read it together and let's try to unpack this and see what's going on. Verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Here Jesus lists some miraculous signs that are going to accompany accompany these men, these apostles, these disciples that are being sent out in their belief and in their proclamation, right? He says, you're going to drive out demons, you're going to speak in new tongues, you're going to pick up serpents, you're going to drink deadly poison, it's not going to hurt you, and in fact, you're going to lay hands on the sick and they're going to recover. So what in the world do we do with this in the church today? What, what do we, what do we, how do we understand this? So you might be getting a little worried that I'm about to uh, pull out a box full of some rattlesnakes or something and send some Kool-Aid for us to drink this morning. Well, don't worry, uh, because if there's a snake in this room, then you guys can figure out how to do the offering and the benediction, and I'll see you next week. <laughs> I'm not sticking around if there's a snake in this room. Uh, so how do we understand this? What do we, what do we do with these miraculous signs that are accompanying the apostles, the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection? 
Here's the thing. Each of these strange signs show up in the rest of the New Testament. Specifically in Acts, we see these things um, unfolding. Don't just believe me reading Rainbow. Don't just take my word for it. Let's see it. You know how to turn in Acts, but you can write these down and read them this evening. Talking about casting out demons. In Acts chapter 8, Philip drives out a demon in in the midst of his ministry and proclamation. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas drive out a demon uh, from this slave girl. Acts chapter 16. Speaking in new tongues. Acts chapter 2. We see Pentecost. The Spirit of God falls on the people. And as they do, Peter speaks, he preaches, he shares the word, and everyone hears in their own language. Acts chapter 10, Gentile people hear the gospel, they believe, they're filled with the Spirit, they speak in new tongues. Acts chapter 10. What about this whole picking up snakes thing? This is kind of a weird one, right? <laughs> well, do we really see this? Does it really happen in the New Testament? Yeah, it does. Acts chapter 28, Paul is in a, in a place called Malta, and he's preaching, and he's preaching around a fire. He's sharing the, the, the gospel, the Jesus' victory over death and sin. And as he's, as he's preaching around this fire, he goes to pick up a log to throw in the fire. And what happens? He grabs the log, but as he's grabbing the log, something grabs him. And he looks down, it's a viper hanging from his hand, right? And he's, he's been bitten. And he throws the log in the fire and the snake with it, and the people begin to murmur. Well, maybe this guy's a, a criminal, maybe he's a murderer or something, and God's punishing him. Maybe this is his way, y'all better watch him, he's about to drop dead. And um, they're kind of they're doing that little murmuring thing, talking, except for that he doesn't die. <laughs> And several hours go by, his hand doesn't swell, he doesn't drop dead. And so then their tune starts to change. Well, hey, maybe this guy's not being punished by God. Maybe he is, in fact, a God. And that's why he didn't die. And uh, why did all this, why did this take place? What's the point of all this? The point is that Paul then take, has this platform, has this incredible opportunity to share with them the miracle of the gospel. And they're listening because this guy's the guy that just got bit by the snake, the viper, and he didn't die. He survived this viper bite just like Jesus said he would in Mark chapter 16 so that the proclamation of the gospel, the the news of Jesus' resurrection would be spread. What's the point? These signs that are mentioned here in 17 and 18 accompany the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel so that people would believe and listen to the truth of it. So let's take this whole text from everything we've been reading this morning in 9 through 20 and see how this thing plays out, right? How did they know, immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection, how did they know that the gospel was true, right? Think about that. How did they know, immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection, that it was true? How did Mary, the two disciples on the road, and eventually all 11 disciples, the rest as the text calls them, how did they know the gospel was true? Jesus appeared to them. Physically, they saw the resurrected Christ with their eyes. That's some real good proof, right? He shows up to a multitude of people and they see him with with physical eyes. There's immediate proof there. What about after Jesus ascended? What What about after he goes to be with the Father, at the right hand of the Father? He's ascended back to his throne in heaven. How were men and women to know that the gospel was true, that Jesus had defeated death? These signs and wonders accompany the proclamation. These, these incredible signs are what's being done as these preachers are sharing the word, the gospel. You go read Acts. These signs and many others accompanied them. God was providing physical proof for physical eyes that the gospel was true, that he had defeated death. Well, what about now? What about now? How are men and women today to know that the gospel is true? How are we to see that it's true? Friends, we have the inspired word of God. He has spoken, and we have his book, and it's full, and it's final, and it's his complete revelation. It's his final revelation of himself to us. 
Friends, they, they didn't have the book of Acts when we were in the, in the book of Acts. They didn't have these, these documents, these scriptures, as these miracles and these signs were taking place as the gospel spread to the entire world at this time. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it means we don't come into this room and a preacher stand up here behind this pulpit and say, God told me, fill in the blank, now watch me cast this demon out of this person or watch me handle this snake to prove to you that God's word is really true. Friend, we have his word. He's already spoken. So when I or any preacher stands behind this pulpit and preaches to you and says, God says, you know what the proof is? It's your Bible. It's these 66 books. It's the, it's the proof that you're holding in your hands, those sacred pages that we love and that we read and that we cherish. You want to know if it's true? Look in the book. If it's not in the book, don't listen to it. God's already spoken. It's that simple. You have his full word. So if you're thinking and if you're trekking with me this morning, you may have a question here. And it would be a good question. So are you saying, Matt, that God doesn't do miracles in our world anymore today? Are there, are there signs and, and wonders? Are there these kind of, of wonders and signs that accompany gospel proclamation today? Well, this is certainly a can of worms to open at the end of a sermon. So let me just give you a quick answer, uh, one that maybe you can dig into in your growth groups. While it is possible that God might still show up in any of these miraculous signs and wonders today, that accompany gospel proclamation, why it's, it's possible that he may do that. It's not normative for us today. And by normative, I mean it shouldn't be expected in every circumstance today. Why? Because we have the Bible. It's not necessary today. He has spoken and revealed himself to us in his word. The Bible is the norm. It's the normative. It's the expected today for the proclamation of the word of God. It's how he shows himself to us. It's also the litmus test to see if someone's life aligns with the way that God's word says that a Christian should live. It is the standard. It is the norm today. So while he may do any one of these things, anytime he gets ready to, um, it's not to be expected. It's not the norm for the church today. Number four, and our final point. Jesus ascends, there's his action, Jesus ascends and we celebrate in hopefulness. Jesus ascends and we celebrate in hopefulness. Look at verses 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. It's been sitting. We've all been sitting for quite a while. In just a moment, we're going to have the benediction and we're going to pray. And at that point, you're going to stand and be dismissed. And your standing in that moment will signify something for us. When you stand and walk out of this room, it's showing us, it's a, it's a picture, it's signifying that our worship gathering is finished. We're done. Until next time when we meet together, it's finished, right? Our text this morning is showing us this same truth, but by the exact opposite sign. Here's what I mean. When a king sits down, when a king sits down on his throne, it's evidence that his task, whatever he's been residing over, is finished. It's completed. The work has been completely done, and he's sitting because it is finished. There's nothing left to do. And in verse 19, it says, Jesus was taken up into heaven, and he sat down. Praise God, Jesus sat down, right? Like, you don't think about that, but that glorious action of him sitting demonstrates that our striving is over. There's nothing left for us to do. There's no work that we could do to accomplish our salvation. He has accomplished it fully. The work of redemption is done. You want the proof of it? Jesus is sitting. He's finished. 
He's finished the task. He set it on the cross. It is finished, and he proved it to us by his sitting, his glorious action of taking his throne. This shows us his authority over death. It shows us his authority over Satan, over evil, over men, over our lives. It shows us that he has authority to commission our lives like he did back in verse 16, to send us wherever he wants. Why? Because he's the one sitting. He's the one on the throne. He gets to make it. And he shows us that he has this place of authority at the right hand of the Father, the text says. Man, that's a, that's a whole sermon that we can unpack right there. That as he's sitting in this place of authority at the right hand of the Father, he's interceding for us, the text says. That at this moment, he's praying for you, believer. That he's, he's beseeching God. He's going before God on your behalf this morning. That's an incredible truth. It's incredible confidence that we should have no matter what tomorrow brings our way. Praise God that Jesus sat down. What if tomorrow, every time we sat down, we thought of that truth? Whether we sit down in our car to drive to work, whether we sit down at our desk, whether we sit down at the dinner table, every time we sat, the physical action of sitting tomorrow, we thought, Jesus is sitting. Jesus is sitting. Praise God. He is sitting for us. How would that change our perspective? How would that change the way we face uncertain days? That if every time we sat, we thought, he's sitting. He's sitting for me. He's sitting because he's accomplished everything I need in life. Verse 20 says that they went out and preached everywhere. Guys, when he's sitting, it gives us confidence to preach anywhere. Even where your life may be required, you can go there because he's sitting. And while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Do we believe it? Do we believe this? You watch how it plays out in, in, in Mark. Pastor Stephen, I love the way he, he processed this and walked through this and sitting across the table from him at Zaxby's as he's unpacking this and just in what the Lord's been doing in him. The Lord wrung my heart out over this. Friends, here's, here's the truth. The tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, the throne is occupied. And because the throne is occupied, I have a mission. My life has a purpose. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied. My life has a mission. And the tomb is empty because he's been raised. There is now no more death for us that are in Christ. He has conquered death. The tomb is empty. The throne is occupied because he is the one that is Lord of lords. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And there is no other choice. There is no other choice than but for my life to have a mission because he, the tomb is empty, the throne is occupied, and he has spoken and given me a commission. There's no other choice for me to say to my king, yes, absolutely yes. It is my mission because you've made it my mission. And if, if we're honest this morning before the Lord, and this might sting a bit because it did for me. If we're honest before the Lord, I think the majority of us in this room would say, absolutely the tomb is empty. Yes, man. Praise the Lord. The tomb is empty. And the majority of us in this room this morning would say that the throne is absolutely occupied. Yes, Matt, praise the Lord. He is on the throne. Yes, absolutely. But how many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest before the Lord, could say, my life is an example of what it looks like to be on mission for the king? You want to know what it looks like? You want to know what it looks like to follow the king in this mission? Just look at my life. I'm doing it. Yeah, I struggle at times, but I'm doing it. How many of us can get from an empty tomb to an occupied throne to a mission that captivates our lives? We can demonstrate that with the way that we respond every day to the commission we've been given. So as Michael comes, we're going to respond. And here's, here's how I'm going to ask you to respond. As we play and as the music plays and as we sing, you may be here this morning and you may need to grab someone's hand. Come grab my hand on the front. 
and say, maybe for the very first time, this is the first time this thought has ever captivated your heart, that the tomb is empty. Which means I believe, I believe that he's beaten death, that he's conquered my sin. For the very first time this morning, one of you may need to come and say, will you pray with me? Will you show me how to become a Christ follower? Because I believe the tomb is empty. Some of you this morning may need to say, uh, the throne is occupied. That means there's a king in charge of my life. My life hasn't been looking like that, right? There's anxiety in my heart that would say that I don't trust this king fully. There's anger in my life that, that would say I don't trust this king fully. Maybe there's, there's, there's an obsession with worldly things in my life that would say that I don't trust this king fully. And this morning you need to come. You believe that the tomb is empty, but this morning the thought of the king on his throne hasn't captivated you so that sin is being rid from your life. The third person this morning that may need to respond, and I think it's every one of us, that we would come before the Lord and say, I've not been living with this mission. But because you've defeated death, because the tomb is empty, because the throne is occupied, I have no choice but to live in the way that you've commanded me. So send me, Jesus. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. I'll be obedient because you've conquered death. Let's pray.